HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Tending to You. Tending to You provides mobile bartenders and waitstaff for private events in Louisiana and the greater Houston area. Learn more at tendingtoyou.com. That's tending, the number two, and the letter U, dot com. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade. From the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It is Wednesday, February 10th, 2021. This is the 279th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talent in the hospitality industry. Today, my guest is a legendary food writer who has a new book and a new food publication, and I will introduce him fully in a moment. First, as I do in every show, I will start out with my PR tip, and then later we will have my speed round game, Industry News Discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to strive to live a healthy lifestyle. Let's focus on eating well with a variety of real wholesome food, including fruits and vegetables and whole grains, plus drink plenty of water. And beyond what we consume, it's important that we also move our bodies and get exercise, as well as a good night's sleep. We need to remember to make ourselves the priority and always put our health first, as it is what is most important. That's my tip today. Now, I'm extremely honored to have my guest joining me. It is legendary food writer Mark Bittman, a leading voice in global food culture and policy for more than three decades. Mark is a former longstanding columnist for The New York Times and the author of 30 books, including the How to Cook Everything series 
and the number one New York Times bestseller, VB6, Eat Vegan Before Six to Lose Weight and Restore Your Health for Good. He has made countless TV and radio appearances, and he has received six James Beard Awards, four IAC awards, and new awards, and numerous other honors. He is the editor-in-chief of The Bitman Project, and he just released his latest book, Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. So, Mark, hello. Welcome to the show. Oh, hello. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you. Of course, that was a mouthful, and it was only like a little snippet of your bio. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm really, I'm really excited to have you and, and um, hear about your book and everything you're working on. But I always love to start with my guests and find out how they got into their career. So you want to take us back a little bit into uh, what led you to become a journalist? Uh, yeah, except because I'm older than all of your other guests, it's a longer story. <laughs> Um, I was doing community organizing and, uh, this is back in the seventies and fell into, uh, because I was a terrible community organizer because I have fear of other people, basically. Um, I fell into running the newspaper for this little organization I was working for and, um, and so I was able to learn how to edit other people's work and type and do photography and layout and all these things we used to do. And um, fast forward about eight or 10 years when I decided I was going to try to write to make a living. Um, and no one was really interested in anything that I was writing about until I started writing about food. So I started writing about food. Um, this was in New Haven, Connecticut. And things just, things went well. I was writing for two or three local newspapers and then I started writing for some papers around the country. I became the restaurant reviewer for Connecticut Magazine and I started writing freelancing for the Times and then I became editor of Cook's Magazine, which was the predecessor of Cook's Illustrated. I then became the founding editor of Cook's Illustrated. And, and then I started writing more regularly for the Times. I got my column there. I wrote how to cook everything, blah, blah, blah. I mean, the details would take hours. Yeah, but you, I mean, you ended up at the New York Times and you were there for a long, a very long time. You're you know, with your, your weekly column, The Minimalist, I, I have to ask because I've worked with Jim Leahy of Sullivan Street Bakery. And I'm just, I've always been so curious to know when you wrote about his no need bread recipe at the time back in 2006, did you foresee it becoming such a revolutionary uh, recipe for people and the way they bake bread? No, of course not. And, and that's a great story in and of itself. In 2006, I had been writing the minimalist column for almost 10 years already. Um, it started in 97. And I was always open to ideas. I uh, didn't know Jim well, but I had met him a couple of times. And he called and said, I mean, I, I think he emailed and said, I have this way of making bread without kneading. Um, do you want to talk about it? And I, I started making bread at the same time I started writing, 1970. Um, and there were a bunch of short, there was always shortcuts. People were always looking for sort of the Holy grail, the food processor made it much easier to make 
decent bread without needing. But Jim clearly had some interesting ideas, and I knew he was a good guy, an interesting person. So I called him, and he said, well, here's basically what it is, and he described it. And he said, why don't you come over, and we'll do it. And I went over, and it was just at the beginning of when the Times was starting to do uh, video for food stories. So we had started to do some minimalist videos, but this was really, we were playing around and this was the first time I went out with a crew and we went out with a crew and we went to gyms and we did the no need bread and it is fabulous and boom, it took off. And it's kind of funny that I've written like, I don't know, probably 15,000 recipes. And at that point I had probably written 500 minimalist recipes. And the one that I became best known for at least then was someone else's, but you know, all credit to Jim. It was a, it was a brilliant thing. And we both rode that, rode that train for a long time. Yes. Well, I, and I just the other day went and I watched that video. I don't know, it's found it online <laughs> and it was great to see. And, I'll have to look at um, it. I haven't seen it. I mean, that's 15 years ago. That is really, I probably look like a kid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and Jim too. I mean, it, yeah. yeah, it's great that you have the archives of it and, um, uh, yeah, it is. I mean, just having having worked with him or just it's like, yeah, it's it's what people talk about. And it is it is a revolutionary recipe. So um, and then you went on. I mean, you decide I mean, you wrote a book or now you've had a whole series on how to cook everything, which is like such a huge uh, uh, to take that on, I guess, as a subject matter. Um, did I mean, how did you approach that? because it's, um, it is a vast subject, I guess you'd say. Right. Well, that's, you know, earlier, actually. Um, oh, it was. was. Okay. Yeah. Um, in, in 90, uh, let's say 91 or so, I pitched my first book, which was Fish. Um, and I was very passionate, remained very passionate about Fish. Um, but I had written a lot of pieces for the Washington Post and other publications about fish. And, um, and I pitched this book and, and it sold and fish cookbooks were supposed to be automatic losers, but mine did pretty well. And at the same time, my publisher was interested in doing a big general cookbook. So they asked me if I wanted to do it. And, and, um, that's how I had to cook. Everything happened. I worked for, four years on it. I was lucky enough to do it at a time when publishers could still afford to be patient because now they'd be like, you have 18 months or we're publishing it next fall or whatever. But I worked on it hard for three years or so. And I, I had a pretty good manuscript, but I also had a great editor and she got a budget to hire another editor. And the three of us worked really hard for, there were, basically 25 chapters. And we basically did a chapter a week for six months. And we really turned it into what became How to Cook Everything, which is something, you know, I'm extremely proud of and was an innovative and smart, big general cookbook and remains that. It's been through two revisions and it's it's different, but it's heart and soul remain in the same place. And 
it won all kinds of awards and sold very well and became what it is and blah, blah, blah. But um, it was very much a team effort and it took a really long time. It was not magic, I can tell you. Yeah, well, you made magic out of it, and because yeah, <laughs> you did, and so, and so, let's let's talk a bit about this new book you have out, uh, Animal Vegetable Junk. What prompted you to want to dive into the history of of food and humanity? And I know you've I know you've written about um, about this subject matter over the years. You you haven't just been writing about recipes, so. Um, but to write a whole book about it. When when did you start working on it? Well, this is another story is that after, and it's connected, so as long as we're telling stories. Um, <laughs> after How to Cook Everything came out, I was thinking more and more about the nature of food and what there was to talk about beyond eating and restaurants and travel and fun and all of that stuff. and. Fast Food Nation came out, which Eric Schlosser's book, which is really seminal and important. And um, I realized I should be, in a way, going back to my political roots, but in a way, moving forward and talking about the production of food and what food meant to different people and how different people from farmers to retail workers contributed to the food we eat and blah, blah, blah. Um, and really, the Times was not or at least the food section of the Times was not interested in that kind of stuff. Their focus was food is fun, food is entertainment, food is enjoyment. So long story short, I went to different sections of the newspaper and, and started to talk about how it was important to write about food and agriculture, which the Times was really not doing in those days. And I wound up at Week in Review, it's now called Sunday Review, but I wound up at Week in Review and I did a few stories that did very well. And then I pitched to the opinion section, writing a weekly piece about food. And that that was in 2010 and, and that, or maybe 2011. And that, that happened. And my idea was that I would just look at a different aspect of the food system every week and put together this great gigantic picture of a food system that wasn't really working for the majority of people in the United States or in the world. And um, so after four years of that, I realized that that wasn't the right approach. I mean, the column was very successful and I was really happy about it and many people loved it. And I think I brought a lot of issues to the attention of many people who would not have seen them otherwise, at least not back then and so on. But I really wasn't succeeding in painting this big unified picture of what was wrong with the food system and how to fix it. So I left with the idea in 2015, I left with the idea that I would try to figure out a book on, on exactly that, which, which is kind of funny because um, I was going through some old archival stuff on my laptop a day or two ago, and I found a proposal for a book similar to that from 20 years ago. And then I found one kind of vaguely similar also from 30 years ago, but okay, whatever. Clearly it was a good idea that was lingering with me for a long time. Um, so in 2015, 2016, I wrote the proposal for what became Animal Vegetable Junk. And I just said, 
I want to look at how we got to this place. It's a long story. Um, the history of food and agriculture is basically the history of humanity. So it takes a while to tell it. And then where are we at, which is not a good place? And how are we going to get to a better place in food, what that means and how that might happen? And that's what animal vegetable junk is. And I like to think it's a, an engaging, um, really intriguing story about, about food and, and humans. Yeah, I've been, I've been reading it. It's, um, it's, I mean, there's so much amazing content and how, I mean, what are you, I guess, what are you hoping readers will get out of this book? I mean, you talk about how food affects everything and, and also how, I mean, you were, you were able to tie in the pandemic and, and COVID, you know, up, as a part of the story, which I think is is great that you, you know you were writing it, I guess still through um, this this crazy year that we've been through now, and a lot of things have changed. Well, it's funny because a book just like a newspaper story has to have an ending and get turned in at some point. I mean, you do hear these crazy stories about authors who are twenty years past deadline, but I'm not that kind of writer, so. Um, in the summer or spring and summer, when the book was due, I just kept saying, give me another couple of weeks, give me another couple of weeks, because I did want to include some stuff about COVID. But in the long run, um, well, you did ask a question, but let me say this about COVID, but I'll, I'll answer the question too. Um, you know, COVID is obviously a tragedy. It's not up to me to comment on it particularly, but, but 300,000 more or less Americans lost their lives from complications of COVID in 2020, and probably another 300,000 will this year. It's terrible, and it could have been dealt with better and so on, but it will pass. And meanwhile, a million or more people a year are losing their lives to diet-related chronic disease, and we don't consider that a crisis. I mean, you and I may consider it a crisis, Many of our listeners may consider it a crisis, but the government's not responding as, a, as if it were a crisis, just like the government has not responded to climate change as if it were a crisis. And these things are crises, and they're ultimately responsible for and going to be responsible for way more deaths than COVID. But because they're not as sudden and dramatic and because we've, come, we've become accustomed to them, they don't get the attention they deserve. So that in a way, it goes back to your question, which was, what do I hope people will get out of this? Well, I hope people will get a better understanding of how the food system got to be the way that it is. And I hope some people, readers who are newer to the subject, I guess, will come to an understanding that food is way more important than we take it for, that we take it for granted and we don't take it seriously enough. And in a way, just like um, I said about my editors at the Times 10 years ago, 12 years ago, food is not just fun and entertainment and joy. And it is all of those things, of course. Food is there to be loved and, and we love it and we should. But food is also nourishment and sustainability and and it's it's the job of many people and and um, it's the job of all of us to make sure that the rest of us, that everyone has equal access to nutritious food and so on. And 
that this is my argument for that basically and it's it's pretty detailed and it's way longer than you can do in a newspaper story or a radio interview but it's it is i think interesting compelling and easily understood if you give it the time that it needs to to understand it Yes. Yes. I think I, I agree. And I, I think it's an important read. Everyone should, should read your book. It's um, uh, you, you, you know, you, it's very comprehensive and, um, and you're right. It's not, we're not going to be able to sum it up in, in our little interview here, but um, touching on it. So uh, let me ask, you my question for my last guest. Uh, I had on episode 278, Dan Rowe. He's the founder and CEO of Smart, which uh, has launched franchises, including Five Guys and the Halal Guys. And uh, he's the co-founder and managing partner at Kitchen Fund and Brand Invest, and they invested in brands such as Sweetgreen. So Dan wants to know, when are we going to see meatless and plant-based more pervasive in the restaurant business and in homes? Well, you're seeing it, um, and I think you're going to see it more. I don't think that I don't know what meatless means really, because that's. It, I mean, I I know what the word means, but I don't think that there's any reason to encourage people to be vegan. I don't think that's particularly a goal. I think that that our goal in diet should be to grow better food, um, and that means way more from the plant kingdom to produce less junk food, which I think is even more of a problem than meat. But but yes, also to get rid of factory farms, to stop torturing animals, to stop overproducing and overconsuming meat. I think all of that needs to happen. I think it is happening and it will happen. But um, I don't think it's going to happen because people change their buying habits. I think, although it will happen a little bit, from that, but I think more it has to happen from regulating agriculture, regulating what kind of food we produce, helping um, to make fruits and vegetables more affordable and more widely distributed. All of those things I think are important. And I think that kind of policy and that kind of attention needs to be given to, um, to making fruits and vegetables more widely affordable, more widely accessible, rather than the kind of tech answer of how do we create a better meatless burger, for example. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. So you had big news as well as your book coming out this week. Just, I believe yesterday, you launched the Bitman Project, uh, which is which is awesome. Uh, is this, so is this, are you shifting from heated to the Bitman project and, and what's this, and if so, what's going to be new and different with, um, your new food publication? Well, I've been building, I mean, the short answer is yes, heated. We have left medium, we have left heated and, and we have founded the Bitman project. And I think the, the key to all of this is me saying we, which is that for a long time, I felt like there was more work to do than I could do um, because I've expanded the the kind of writing that I do and, and the kind of work that I do. 
it needed to become more of a team effort. So I've been working with a number of people for, for I mean, I've been working with a couple of people for many years, but, but that group has grown and we're producing way more stuff than I can produce myself. And we want to and have been, we were doing it at Heated and we're going to do it even more at the Bitman Project, involving more and more voices from um, from around the country, around the world, different topics, different people, different media, and so on. So the Bitman Project is mostly represented at the moment by our Substack newsletter, which like all Substack newsletters is a, or like most anyway, is a free subscription with a option for a, a paid membership that has added benefits. And it did just launch yesterday. I'm pleased to say um, we seem to be doing very well. We, are, we had um, a thousand subscribers to our free newsletter already. So we had a lot, a bit of a leg up, but obviously to make this work as a business, we need the paid memberships as well. And I think that's going well. And and the better it goes, the better product we can put forward. So this is kind of the model for independent journalism right now. And, and it's appealing to me and my team. It's appealing to us. And, and we really think we can make a go of it and have a, a food newsletter, podcast, videos, et cetera, et cetera, that... Um, is independent and that really works and that tackles all the issues around food, not just cooking and not just policy and not just travel or restaurants, but all of those things. Yeah, I think it's great. And as you said, Substack, I think is, is what uh, the, the, what's, I don't know, become the, the outlet or the way publications are, are running or creating um, outlets for themselves these days. And and it's it's great. There's options, you know, with with whether it's free or it's uh, people subscribe. I hope people subscribe. Um, but uh, what um, I mean, it sounds it sounds great. I'm I'm looking forward to diving into it. And I was a fan of Heated as well, so I've always been a fan of your work. Uh, what do you what's 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 um, as far as books? Do you see yourself writing? another one anytime soon um is 30 just enough <laughs> <laughs> well it's a lot, I it's a lot of books it's a lot of books it's very impressive you know it's how i've made my living so what am i gonna do i mean if you're it's not and as i said it's been a team effort especially recently um I am working on a bread book. This is not a pandemic related thing. I've been, as I, as I said before, I've been baking bread for 50 years, so I'm going to keep doing that. But um, when I was living in Berkeley in, in uh, 2015, 2016, I fell in with a bunch, there's really good baking in, in Berkeley and people were taking, beginning to take whole grain seriously. Everybody knows that sourdough is a Bay Area thing, but all sourdough means is naturally fermented bread. It doesn't necessarily mean bread that tastes sour. So um, I, I fell in with some of these really great bakers out there who were doing whole grain bread. And I became friendly with this guy named Bob Klein who um, developed Community Grains, which was helping farm California farmers grow 
heritage brands, heritage varieties of wheat, really good varieties of wheat that made great whole grain bread. And then I met a woman in Chicago around the same time who was doing fabulous whole grain, naturally fermented bread. And I just got more and more into it. When I came back East in 2016, I just started messing around with whole grain and some of really some of the stuff I'd learned from Jim and um, some of the stuff I'd picked up over the years. And I became more and more convinced that the marriage of natural fermentation, sourdough, and whole grain was really what real bread was about. That sourdough is not just this thing that you use as leavening. Sourdough and, and whole grains grew up together, and you need sourdough to make good whole grain bread, and you should use sourdough to make good whole grain bread. So this book is about exactly that. It's a book of all whole grain recipes and um, all natural fermentation or sourdough techniques. And I think that we, I'm writing it with my um, long-term collaborator, Kerry Cohn, and we're writing it together. And um, I think that we've really come across some techniques that are unusual and different. And we have the endorsements of some people who really know what they're doing, like who understand the science of it, which I don't even pretend to. Um, and that's, we're just about, we're putting the finishing touches on that. I mean, after How to Cook Everything and after Animal Vegetable Junk, to do a single subject book about bread that has like 100 recipes of it is a relatively short project for me, especially with a co-author as accomplished as Carrie. So, um, yeah, we worked on it. We've been working on it for a year, year and a half, and I'm baking bread right now. I bake bread several times a week and and eat it all the time. And it's all whole grain at this point. And it's just a really long and wonderful, enjoyable learning process. Um, and I hope the book expresses that. But um, yeah, that's the goal. And after that, I honestly don't know. Usually I'm two or three books ahead. Right now, I can't tell you what's next, which for me is is different, but it's it's because um, animal vegetable junk was such a huge challenge, and and because there are so many demands to talk about it, really, um, that I'm I'm just completely caught up in that and will be for a while, which is fine. I love it. Yeah, well, that's great, and and I look forward to your bread book and whatever else is to come. So on that note, let's take a little break. We'll come back. We'll play my speed round game. We'll talk some industry news. I have my solo dining experience in the final question. So stay with us. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Tending to You. Tending to You provides mobile bartenders and waitstaff for private events in Louisiana and the greater Houston area. Their dedicated and capable team specializes in traditional sit-down dinner gatherings, past appetizer service, buffet-style meals, and bartending refreshing customized cocktails and beverages. They provide all their own tools needed for a pop-up bar, including drinkware, garnishes, napkins, and more to be set up for success. They also come equipped with trays, gloves, and cleaning products, 
which allows Tending to You to provide a superior level of service. Learn more at tendingtoyou.com. That's tending, the number two, and the letter u.com. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer, and my guest today is Mark Bittman. He's a former New York Times columnist. He's a leading voice in global food, culture, and policy for more than three decades. And his new book out is called Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. So, Mark, it's time for my speed round game. What this is, is I'm going to name a couple things, and you get to pick your preference, such as chocolate or vanilla. You ready? Uh, go right ahead. <laughs> okay, here we go. Eat in or eat out? Oh, definitely in. Wine, beer, cocktail, soft cocktail, or champagne? Um, I don't suppose there's any reason to be private about the fact that I stopped drinking two or three years ago, so it's a soft cocktail for me. That's cool. I don't, I don't drink either, so we're in the same boat. <laughs> I mean, I have to Here's say I, I spent the Super Bowl weekend with my sons-in-law, and one was having a martini every night, and the other was drinking beer and rye, I won't say nonstop, but, you know, at a certain clip. And I was a little bit envious, but once you stop, you sort of feel like starting is a mistake. So, yeah, yeah, you, I don't know. You get used to it. Like, like habits, any habits. Yeah. So, um, okay. How about tasting menu or a la carte? Wow. You know, um, I can remember the first tasting menu I had, and it was in the mid eighties at, um, John Louis Paladin's restaurant. And then I had tasting menus made by Jean-Georges Van Gerichten in the late eighties. And, and then the years went by and I just got more and more tired of that. And I just thought this three hour, four hour, five hour experience of just eating and eating and eating and never quite feeling full. And I could tell great stories about this, but the short answer is, since this is a speed round, a la carte. <laughs> a la carte. Okay. How about small plates or large plates? Same thing, sort of. I mean, I like small plates, but, you know, more and more, I just want to, and again, I, I mean, I'm really a home cook, and especially with COVID, obviously, but my days in restaurants they're not over, but they're few and far between, and they were even before um, COVID. So, you know, I cook I cook dinner every night, and it's a it's one plate with two or three things on it, and a pretty traditional style. So, medium plates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I have a few more. I have a few more that are restaurant uh, oriented. Uh, I mean, I have communal tape. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'll have some experience eating in restaurants. I can talk about them. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, we're we're going we're going to talk about them a little more. But let, okay, for the speed round, um, I've got communal table or chef's counter. Um, I like both, but I love a communal table. Okay, how about tipping or all inclusive charge? Well, that's a big question because it's you know the. The yeah. federal 
standard. <laughs> the federal standard for tipped workers is $2.13 an hour. So tipping has to be, um, I don't know if it has to be outlawed, but it has to be overcome by paying people a living wage. So definitely pay people a living wage. If you want to leave a tip after that, great. But let's get restaurant workers paid $20 an hour. Great. How about uh, vegetables or meat? Had well, to choose. Well, vegetables are more important, but you know, I will. I won't. It's unlikely that I'm going to stop eating meat in my lifetime. Right. Yeah. Okay. I have three more: authoring books solo or with chef co-authors. Um, I have had co-authors, both chefs and, as I said, Kerry Conan's written, co-written a lot of books with me. Um, I had help on Animal Vegetable Junk, too. You can't, it's really hard to write a book by, solo, solo. A novel, I guess, but a researched book or a recipe book, you need a team. Yeah. I, ha I happen to have your uh, John George Cooking at Home with a Four-Star Chef book. Um, book. I've had it on my shelf for a really long time. So <laughs> I own that one. Copy of, um, I'd love to send you a copy of Simple to Spectacular, which was Jean-Georges and my second book and is one of the, I think it's one of the most underrated books, certainly that I've done. It's a great, great book. I don't even think it's in print anymore, but I, would, I have some. I would love it. that. I've seen the cover. Yes, I feel like I know that book. cover. Oh, fabulous. Awesome. Book. Okay, last two, cheese plate or dessert? Uh, depends on the mood. I do like a good cheese plate. With your bread. <laughs> <laughs> um, and last one is Manhattan or Brooklyn. I was born and raised in Manhattan. That's actually an easy one for me. I am All a Manhattan right. boy through. Awesome, that's the game. So uh, for industry news, I, there was an article in the New York Times entitled, Restaurants Find a New Revenue Source, Feeding the Hungry. What began as an emergency measure in the pandemic's early days has turned into a long-term business plan that could help many kitchens keep running. This was by Jane Black. Um, I know Jane, she's she's wonderful. And um, this, was, this article I thought was interesting. It was highlighting uh, a lot was on this restaurant in Baltimore called Alma Cochina Latina, and it's talking about how they started charitable feeding program at the beginning of the pandemic, and they've uh, the initiative has served more than 100,000 meals, but and they partnered with Jose Andres uh, with World Central Kitchen. Jose, you know, Jose is amazing, and uh, but the article is talking about how this is not just going to be something that's going to end if when the pandemic ends, that they're they're incorporating it into the business model with having a charity component as well as a restaurant. So I thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. It is interesting. And I think it goes back to, um, I mean, I think what you've seen during the pandemic is you've seen farmers who are, who are recognizing that they can more readily or as readily sell their products into the so-called emergency food system as they can sell their products into the normal food system, so-called normal food system. I think, it goes back to what I was saying before. If we're going to make fruits and vegetables affordable and more accessible, we have to grow more of them, which means we have to encourage people to farm 
in a way that's good for the rest of us and good for land and so on. And we have to make sure that they make a living wage in doing that farming, get that food into the food system on as short a supply chain as possible and get them into the hands of people who are going to cook it either for their communities or for their families. So that means both restaurants and home cooks. Um, it's not something that's going to happen overnight. It is happening in small ways everywhere. And I think those models are very, very important, like the ones Jane's writing about. Um, but we need to make it more official policy and we need to encourage it on a national level. It can't, it can't just be a few people with a few good ideas doing a few good things. It has to be the way that things are done. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It touched on, talked about Rethink Food in the article, which is also, a, it's a New York nonprofit that uh, partnered with like 11 Madison Park and, and um, has also been, been uh, doing amazing, amazing work. And uh, I think, um, yeah, I think this is, I agree with you. I think, and I think this is the future, hopefully. Um, I love that restaurants are making it work and also, you know, it's a charitable component, which is feel good. And so, so we'll, we'll see, I'm sure we'll see more about this. And uh, so I, before I do my solo dining experience, I just also want to make a quick announcement. Uh, I work with Curious Elixirs, which is a curiously complex booze-free cocktail. I had John Weissman, the founder, back on my show on two, episode 254. Um, well, Curious is doing, they, they, they started a, a grant program. It's called Curious Creators Grants. And the applications are now open. And this is a new program open to creators of any of many stripes. Uh, it's going to award over $10,000 in unrestricted funds to the creation of new works. And the categories for submissions are words, music, images, visual arts, movement, and culinary. And I encourage you to apply. Um, the deadline for submissions is February 15th. And you, to learn more, you can go to CuriousElixirs.com. Really cool. So, yeah, it is very cool. John is, John is awesome. And and wants to give back and help help people. So it's it's all it's all from coming from his heart. And uh, okay, so my solo dining experience this week, I went to a restaurant called Kamika. Here's the rundown. The location, 40 Kenmar Street at the Nolitan Hotel in Nolita, New York City. The concept is Itameshi cuisine, which is a mashup between Italian and Japanese. The owners are Erica Choi. Chef Duran Wong, and the chef is Christine Lau. So why did I go? Well, I heard amazing things about this place. It opened in the summer during the pandemic, and I wanted to support them. So last week I went, um, I made a reservation for two. I show up by myself because a lot of these systems just, they don't have a reservation option for one. Um, so I just I just do that and make sure it's okay. I'm just there by myself. and They haven't turned me away yet. Um, so uh, I was a little early. I took a walk around the neighborhood. It was really cool to see down in Nolita what's happening with all these outdoor spaces being set up and how creative restaurants have been. Um, I went back to the restaurant. I was seated at a nice table on their patio that was very socially distanced. Um, everyone's wearing masks. It felt very safe. Um, the, my server, Eileen, was lovely. We chatted. Uh, I know Doran, the, um, the partner, and he came out. 
uh, I guess, you know, just by seeing my name in the reservation book. And I, I got to chat with him and meet the chef, Christine, and it was really great. So what did I get? I got their tuna tartar with ikura, scallions, cucumbers, crispy rice, spicy mayo, and nori. I got crispy rice cake lasagna with sweet Italian sausage, spicy cabbage, scallions, and provolone. They sent me out some spicy olives with some skinny breadsticks to start. They also, they went crazy. They sent me out mortadella, pizzette, uh, frite, and a, a little dessert, a little mochi, bomboloccini with Nutella. Um, so my take, I really loved everything. I wasn't sure what to expect because it's, it's, it's an interesting combination with Italian and Japanese, but I really thought the flavors were bold and really worked together. Everything I had was delicious and um, I had definitely had leftovers to go. So the ambiance, it's a spacious covered patio in the front of the restaurant with heat lamps, nicely spaced apart. It was warm. I actually took off my jacket, which I haven't done yet when I've been dining out. Uh, perfect for dinner with friends. Interesting tidbit. Kamika is offering a uh, do-it-yourself meal kits, which include the tartar and the rice cake lasagna. I didn't mention the tuna tartar actually comes uh, deconstructed and I mixed it myself. So it's definitely a great thing to, to have at home. Personal fun fact, um, I once had dined at the, the restaurant that was in this space before Solo. It was called The Usual, and I remember having a great burger there. And uh, Doran and Christine told me that they're actually going to be opening something on the rooftop of the hotel. So something to look forward to. The cost of this meal was $48, not including tax and gratuity and the few dishes that they comped. Would I go back? Yes. And their website is kamikanyc.com. That's K-I-M-I-K-A-N-Y-C.com. There we go. Um, I know, Mark, you're not dining out that much. I've been in the city like three times since March. So, and, and yeah. in my whole life, I had never not been in New York for more than six weeks at a time. And so sometime in April, I guess, I was like, oh my God, I haven't been in the city for six weeks. So I just went and looked around and came back home and then, you know, I've been a couple other times, but I've barely, my mother still lives in the city. I visited her once. I mean, it's really, it's tough, but yeah, I haven't been in a restaurant yeah. in, to speak of in a year. It's really, it's really something. It's so different. It is so different. And I, I live in Manhattan. So, um, you know, it's been interesting seeing the city change and, and, uh, and I, I just, I've been, I haven't been dining out as much as I used to, but I am trying to go out and support where exactly. it feels safe. And so, okay. So it's time for the final question. My next guest is Valerie Lomas. She is an attorney turned food personality and she has a cookbook coming out in the fall. She's a contributor to the Food Network Kitchen New York Times cooking, and she's the co-host of Why Food here on Heritage Radio. And I know you were recently a guest on her show because I yeah. listened. <laughs> yeah. So, um, Mark, what would you like to ask Valerie? Well, I mean, I I loved meeting Valerie by phone, and I didn't know about her cookbook. So when I found that, you know, obviously I'm curious what it's about, and I'd like to know what inspired her, and and I think what what recipe she likes the best. That's a question that I always get that stumps me because they're all like your little children, but usually you have a favorite. So I guess I'd like to know that. Great, I will find out. 
Good question. And um, that's really happy about that. Yeah, I'm, I mean, I, she's, I'm excited to hear her story because she did, I, I didn't, she actually won season three of ABC's Great American Baking Show. Um, and that's kind of what pushed her to leave, you know, turned her career into uh, really cooking and creating this, this new, this new, this new thing for her. So um, I'm excited to talk to her. And I've been thrilled to talk to you. I, I thank you so much for your time and congratulations on your incredible career, all the books, all the recipes. <laughs> um, and also, I mean, we didn't even, I wish I had a longer show. We could have talked about the TV appearances and things you've done over the years because you've done that as well. So well, next time. I can, I can come back anytime, but it was really fun. Thank you for having me and um, good luck. Take care. Thank you, Mark. My guest today has been Mark Bittman. He's the for, a former New York Times columnist. He's a leading voice in global food culture and policy. He's the founder of the Bittman Project. He's an author, and his latest book is Animal Vegetable Junk, A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. Go get it. It's at all your local bookstores, book and it's on Amazon. I'm sure you can find it um, wherever you look. Check him out. His website's markbitman.com, bitmanproject.com, on Twitter at Bitman and Instagram at Mark Bittman. Um, I'm at Sherry Bayer at Bayer PR and at All Industry. My Facebook page is all in the industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com, SherryBayer.com, and all in the industry.com. All of our shows are archived at HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We are also on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify. Thanks always to my engineer today, Amanda Wang. Thanks again to Mark. And also thanks to his daughter, Kate Bittman, and also Melissa McCart. I'm Sherry Bayer. I'll be back next week with a new show. Hope you'll tune in then. Stay safe and well. And thank you for being part of All in the Industry. Bye. All in the Industry is powered by Simplecast. I'm Sherry Bayer, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, HRN is celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org.